This episode of To The Last Drop is sponsored by the Listen Audio app, where you can stream all your favorite radio stations, catch up on the latest news and entertainment, and dive into captivating podcasts all in one app. That's Download Listen, that's L-I-S-T-N, from the App Store or Google Play. The Listen Audio app, everywhere you are. It's time for To The Last Drop podcast with Liam Delcom and Brandon Nell. Welcome back, guys. This is To The Last Drop. I'm Brendan Nell, and with me, as always, is Liam Delcom. Liam, uh, hopefully everything good, and you haven't been bombed out by all the lightning in the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, there was quite a violent one yesterday. I was busy working, and then uh, once or twice, I had to sort of just stop and just turn slowly and look out the window just to see if um, the suburban neighborhood, the way I know it, is still, you know, still intact. Yeah. Uh, my whole thing is if you see uh, animals going past two by two, then you must start freaking out. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With us today, uh, we've got a very special guest, an old, old friend of ours. We haven't seen him for quite a while. Uh, Matt McElroth, who's nowadays, uh, Matt, how do I describe you? Maybe you should describe yourself for us and what your role is at the moment. Well, officially, I'm the international media advisor for Japan Rugby League One, which basically means talking to people like your good selves and and generating media opportunities, because obviously Japan's been a a closed area for a long time, but they're starting to open up now. It interested me you're talking about the lightning, because Japan has that problem too. They had a game a couple of weeks ago, uh, cancelled midstream because of a lightning lightning, uh, outbreak, and and that does happen over there a little bit. Yeah, we seem to have these violent, uh, high-felt thunderstorms, as I'm sure you probably remember from your time, yeah? Yeah, um, I and, do. And, yeah, we, uh, we've we had a couple of them in the last week. Uh, so, so yeah, we've all been sort of like ducking for cover the whole time. But <laughs> yeah. We should perhaps also yeah. just give our, our, our listeners, uh, uh, just add to what Matt said earlier. I mean, he is, well, let's not say is, but he used to be an esteemed journalist in, in New Zealand, did a lot of good work out of Christchurch, um, used to rub our noses in it, you know, as the Crusaders set about um, on their <laughs> crusading ways. Uh, and then was also Wallabies media manager for a while. Uh, so, yeah, Matt is a man who's well-traveled and um, uh, certainly a, a seasoned journalist and, and somebody who knows the landscape better than most. So, very nice of you, Liam. Very nice of you. But we were always very pleasant at the Crusaders, very humble people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As for the Wallabies... <laughs> Not, not sure I could say the same. <laughs> uh, it's quite funny. I, I was, I was on one of the New Zealand radio stations the other night, and uh, and they, they were saying, "Oh, we're missing Super Rugby," and they said, "Well, you know, what? we miss the Kiwis." And I said to them, "We really, we enjoy playing you guys, enjoy chatting to you guys all the time, uh, but not so much the Aussies. We don't miss the Aussie derbies." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a complicated competition. I actually personally think you guys are, have got the best of it. What you're doing now. Um, because I think the World Cup probably was a bit misleading in terms of where the power of the game really is, and Super Rugby's struggling, and you're seeing seeing that a little bit with a lot of the players leaving, particularly to Japan. Um, and, yeah, it, its problem is just competitiveness um, because it's dominated by a couple of teams and the fact that, uh, you know, the level of interest is, is dwindling because, um, yeah, it's the same old, same old every year, and uh, and the crowds are not so great as a result. Um, and the and the 
the physicality, I think, that that was there when the All Blacks played, well, the New Zealand teams were playing you guys, uh, is a lot different to Australia. They're not, not such physical games, and, and probably the intensity is not the same. I remember talking to Richie McCaw when I was with the Wallabies, and we were talking about um, Super Rugby, and he said that, because um, back then there, were just, there was talk about you guys leaving, and he said that they would hate you guys leaving because you guys provided the physicality that Australia doesn't, and they worried that, um, or he was worried, that if South Africa went its own way, it would impact on the All Blacks in terms of lack of ability to, to uh, combat the intensity. And I think we saw that. Um, probably not quite so in the World Cup final, but certainly that game at Twickenham, I was I was there for that, and that was that was quite scary to be honest. Watching just how how much you guys destroyed the All Blacks up front, um, and yeah, you know those those attributes got you through the World Cup as well, um, and that didn't surprise me. Is that a topic in New Zealand that's uh, that's taboo? The fact that South Africa no longer plays in Super Rugby, um, and the fact that you know New Zealand rugby may in the long run. Uh, it may be detrimental to them not having, you know, the Springboks or not the Springboks necessarily, but our Super Rugby teams around. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, it, it sort of started to show over time, obviously, with the All Blacks probably losing their aura a bit. Um, I mean, the World Cup get making the final, and and obviously there was a bit of whinging about the final, but that's usual for New Zealanders when Just things don't go bit. their way. Um, <laughs> I think there was a feeling going into that World Cup that just the lack of physicality um, and the lack of the regular exposure to that could could compromise the team, and I I think to be honest it did a little bit. You know if you look at if you look at the All Black performance overall on that tour, they played the three best teams in the world um, in in terms of yourselves, uh, France and Ireland, and they so they played four games against those teams twice against and they only won one of them, and I think that was probably more a reflection of where they're at than the fact that they, they made the final. You know, they had a very nice draw. They really only – the only top side they, they beat in the tournament was Ireland, and that was a fantastic performance. And Ian Foster didn't get the credit he should have got for that because they actually attacked Ireland at their strengths, so their set piece in particular and um, their line-out. And, you know, that was a brave move. But it, it worked for them, and they played really well in that game. But, as I say, the other three games against sides in the top three, they lost – which I think was a more accurate indication of where they're really at. You know, number four was probably a fair ranking for them. So, so maybe just to give a segue back to Japan, uh, <laughs> try and steer yeah. us back because we could probably talk all black Springboks the whole day. Um, but, no doubt. Yeah, but to uh, to give that, there's some talk about um, some future in terms of Jap- the Japanese clubs, sort of other joining, sort of some sort of competition with the Super Rugby guys. Um, you close to the fire? Is that just talk at the moment? Well, yeah, I think I think this weekend with these cross border games as a start, while they're only trial games for the New Zealand sides, the Chiefs and the Blues are both in Japan at the moment, and they're going to play two games each against the top four sides from League One from last year. And the Japanese are certainly hoping that that's the start of something. Um, they appreciate that it's trial games for the New Zealand teams. And so they're playing under trial conditions with, I think, both both teams will have 27 players and they can run them on and off. And I suspect the Japanese sides will probably rest some of their international stars because it's not a competition game for them. Um, but they're certainly hoping that that's the start. And there's no doubt that Super Rugby needs a, a boost. Um, and Japan are sitting there, their club 
competition's only going to get stronger. It's get str- a lot stronger now than it was a couple of years ago. And, and you saw that with the performance of the Japanese-based players in the Springboks at the World Cup. Not only did it not compromise them, it probably enhanced them because they had a lighter schedule going into the international sides. And the, and the clubs, well, as an example this weekend, it's not a competition game, so the clubs are going to rest some of their uh, internationals. I know, for example, that Cheslin Colby is not playing. I actually think he might be back in South Africa at the moment because they've got a bit of a break. Um, so that's the sort of thing that that benefits Japan. It's not just about money. The competition's a lot stronger now, and the teams are a lot stronger. And I think this weekend, I'm, I'm not sure yet of the lineups, but if, if, if Panasonic, um, my old boss Robbie Deans is the coach there, if they play their top team, they'll they'll give the Chiefs a real run. In fact, I'd probably expect them to win that if they played their top team. But I'm not sure what Robbie's thoughts are on that. But those teams would certainly be competitive. Um, and the more Japan plays, the more they're exposed to international sides, the, the better they'll get, just as Argentina did. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, the, the league because a while back it relaunched after the 2019 World Cup. At some point there was the big relaunch. So now the Japanese Rugby League 1 is, is the one in existence. Um, has that been a big shift? Has, has the needle moved sufficiently uh, you know, for the officials in Japan? Uh, it's still a work in progress. They're into their third season. Um, last year they clicked over over a million people through the gates for the first two seasons, which which was a pretty good effort given that it was a new competition. And because of COVID in the first season, they lost a lot of games that were cancelled. They also got 42,000 to the uh, final between the Wild Knights and, and Kubota, Franz Ludeke's team. And that, you know, you compare that to other finals around, it's not bad. It's not a bad crowd. And in the first first two weeks of um, the season, this, this season going, they, the games were played at the same time as the uh, European Cup games, and the Japanese crowds were on, the, on a level. They were on the same level. So that shows the interest there. And the clubs are also – League One was designed to allow the clubs a little bit more control. So they do their own marketing now. They they are looking to really engage with their communities. A couple of clubs even moved bases so that they could represent a particular area as well as their corporate um, status, and that seems to be working pretty well. Um, the the long term goal is for the clubs to be semi independent of their corporate backers, so only fifty percent reliant on the companies that sponsor them. They're still a wee way off that, um, and obviously the league's idea is to gain in, in momentum so that the teams can play internationally, and the, and the league continues to attract top players, um, top coaches, and and certainly we're seeing that. Um, like this year, this season, for example, Wayne Pivak, who won the Six Nations with Wales, and Karen Crowley, who the World Cup notwithstanding did a pretty good job with Italy, they've both arrived to take teams. Robbie's been up there forever, and he's obviously been a hugely successful coach. Uh, Franz probably doesn't get the credit he deserves for everything he's achieved, and he won won the title this last year, so he's there. Todd Blackadder, who did a very, very good job with the Crusaders, he's up there. And there's quite a quite a few others, so it's it's attracting the top coaches. It's certainly starting to attract the top players, um, and it can only continue to uh, grow. I would suspect, particularly with the financial state of the game in other other countries. Had, Hadley Park said to me, who played for Wales 
um, when he was at Panasonic just through the COVID era and, and clubs were going bankrupt. And he said, well, if you have a choice, would you want to play for a club owned by a businessman whose business could go under at any moment or play for a club owned by Panasonic who have got over 100,000 employees and aren't going to go bust anytime soon? So you've got total job security. And that is certainly something I think a lot more players are looking at. And we're seeing um, not so much first-choice England players, but there's a lot of guys coming to the end of their careers in the Premiership who are heading out to Japan um, and doing pretty well. Um, and and certainly some of them are, are showing that they could probably still be picked by their test sides. Uh, the, the, the perceptions around Japanese rugby, because obviously part of your job is to, to promote it, um, what are the challenges there still? I mean, if obviously people would have had a view of, of rugby in Japan before the World Cup in 2019, and maybe a different one after that. Has, has, has that shifted at all? I mean, do you still fight the old fights? Well, I think it's it's we're making improvements. I mean, in my work, as, as you know, because you've been involved, we're starting to get traction now. I mean, three years ago, you couldn't have gone on the websites and found what happened in Japan rugby the last weekend and, and, you know, know the teams a bit better and the players a bit better. So we're certainly getting traction there with, with all the rugby websites, with the material we put out. I think countries are starting to look, look step up their involvement with the Japan, both New Zealand and Australian Union signed memorandum of understanding with the Japanese rugby union last year. And these cross-border club games this weekend are a part of that. Um, and obviously, it'll mean more internationals as well. Both the All Blacks and the Maori All Blacks will play in Japan this year. Um, the Wallabies, I think, are looking to to build their their involvement, and that's great for Japanese rugby as a whole. Because like Argentina in the uh, rugby championship, that regular exposure to those top teams will help grow um, pretty probably as much the belief in the players as anything else. Because I think at the moment they just don't believe when it matters. But they're now playing in a competition with a lot more top international players who they're learning from, both on and off the field. And the more exposure they get to these top sides, like Argentina, at some point they'll crack it. They'll beat beat an All Black side or beat England or some, and they'll be away. That this new group of players will be away. Of course, the random factor at the moment is Eddie Jones, and and what he does in terms of his coaching, in terms of his selection. And as usual with Eddie, how long he lasts. <laughs> I was about to ask, is he still in Japan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, look, he's well respected up there. And I think that, um, I mean, I felt a bit sorry for Franz, who did apply for that job. Um, but, you know, the Japanese love Eddie for what he did in 2019. Um, you know, they're hoping that the side started to flag a bit under Jamie. And I think they, the players were just tired of Jamie. They'd had him for eight years. And you can only hear the same voice for so long. So I think that, um, you know, they're ready, to, they're ready for a new voice. And obviously the JRFU are hoping that Eddie will bring back that, um, that stability and, and take them to the next level again. Um, the, the cattle is certainly there. The playing talent is definitely there. Um, and hopefully over the next couple of weekends, that'll be shown in those cross-border games, although they are trial games. So some of the top Japanese players may not play either. Matthew, I just want to come back to what you were saying earlier about the the financial situation there, because obviously, you know, in South Africa, the Japanese league is seen as quite a, quite a cash cow on on probably on par with the the French top fourteen at the moment, um, and whereas other leagues are, as you know, as you mentioned, are going through um, some some significant challenges um, in terms of that. Uh, 
is long-term financial, if you say the crowds are coming in, I take it it means that the, the financial future of the, the league with these big, the big money they pay players is sustainable because I, I think that's the big worry, I suppose, for any league. Yes, well, I think that the um, there's no doubt that the, the finances help. Um, you know, we know that um, if you go there, you're going to be you're going to be stably supported, um, but also the standard is rising. So you go for the coaching, you go for the uh, for the the level of competition. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, and just uh, in terms of, I just want to bring France shame because, he, as you say, you, he doesn't get as much credit and for a guy who's won uh, two Super Rugby titles and and now the Japanese league as well. Um, yeah, he's he sort of very goes under the radar a lot of the times, but um, it sounds like he's he's built up quite a team there um, in Japan at the moment and doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, well, he he took on a club that that had started to struggle, and he he built them up as you say, and and they won the title this last season, and that was the first title Kubota had ever won, so that was a hugely significant moment for that side. Um, they've started a bit slowly this season, probably a bit of a hangover. But they they're starting to get a bit of momentum now. But yeah, I mean, he's a capable coach. I mean, Brendan, you obviously know him exceedingly well from his time at the Bulls. He's a very genuine guy. Um, he he commands the respect of the players, and and you know the players want to play for him. They want to succeed for him, and we've seen that with Kubota. He's also the sort of guy that gives his senior players uh, the opportunity to lead. He um, you know he understands that they have got to play the game. So he he gives them the opportunity and and allows their heavily inputted. He's very very similar to my old boss Robbie Deans in that um, that department, and it's no coincidence that they've both been so successful. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see him get an international job at some point. I don't know him well, but I know enough from the players that have spoken to me that that have been coached by him. And you know, Japan was a great opportunity. The JRFU decided to go the other way, but who knows? I mean, you know, he's—I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's going to continue coaching there, and, and hopefully, the opportunity will open up. If not in Japan, somewhere else. I know a lot, a lot of um, you know, fo- focus and attention is on the the World Cup winning Springboks from a South African point of view when they in front in, in Japan, um, but but other players have sort of you know, sort of raised their head or raised their profile that we might not see that you've seen, uh, maybe some of them? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a young kid, Pretorius, a centre that's playing for um, France's team that's that's uh, doing pretty well. Brendan Venter's young fellas arrived in Japan, so it's a great experience for him. Um, and then there's a few others that um, probably there's Skulker Rasmus, who's a, a hooker, who's doing doing pretty well over there. And then there's uh, a few that have ended up playing for Japan. You know, Peter's Lapis Lapiskakni, um, is one and Gerhard Vandenheve is another, and they're probably guys that have got away because they've proven with Japan that they that they're up to it, um, and that they can succeed internationally. Um, and then obviously you've got the internationals, and um, a couple of them have broken in rule. Three of them have broken in recent times, which is probably a concern for Rossi. Um, maybe just just such a workload that they've had's contributed there. But um, you know, guys like Faf de Klerk and uh, Jesse Creel are enjoying Japan, and obviously they they send the word back to others that it's a good place to go. And I think that's one of the reasons why the number of South African players heading to Japan is is steadily increasing. You're with Liam Delcom and Brendan Nell on the To the Last Drop podcast. Matt, something you said earlier uh, rather piqued my interest uh, when you mentioned how uh, clubs. 
uh, are looking to sort of unhitch their wagon gradually from the, the big corporations. Uh, is there not a is the climate right for that? Because uh, if you look at the pitfalls elsewhere uh, in the global economy, um, to take that seems like quite a brave step. Does 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 Japan's rugby infrastructure is it strong enough to uh, you know sustain those clubs with less investment from the from the corporations? Well, that's basically the million-dollar question that the next few years are going to tell us. So the the the, the um, competition itself, Japan Rugby League One, which is a separate body from the uh, JRFU, they deliberately set it up separately. It's uh it's corporate support's pretty good, and it's and it's growing. Um, you know the. COVID crisis came at the completely wrong time for them because it meant they couldn't build on the um, the Rugby World Cup. But they're starting to get that now. The clubs are starting. I think most of the clubs are sort of at 25% of their of their incomes coming from beyond the, the corporate sponsor. Um, so that'll continually build as, as the profile of the, uh, the game in Japan builds again. Having the All Blacks and the Maori All Blacks in England up there this year is going to help. Um, so it's and the the more work the clubs do in the community, their communities, the more that will grow as well. But they have the advantage that say the you know the Stormers and the Bulls and uh, Leicester and and um, you know Clermont don't have, and that they've got a corporate backer, so that they're always going to be secure regardless of whether the um, the money's being put in by their own commercial success or by the by the corporate sponsor. It, it doesn't appear that any of the uh, corporations are likely to bail on uh, on League One. So, you know, it's a lot easier when you've got that security. And that's what the players are looking at, and that's where the league's at as well. Um, you know, it knows that um, the, these clubs are going to continue. The league, the league itself is very, very fortunate that its chairman, uh, Gen Tamatsuka-san, he is one of the most successful businessmen in Japan. So he's very, very well known. He's on the same level as all the, the heads of the corporations, not sort of the general manager of the, of the rugby club. He's he's talking to the boss of Suntory, for example, the boss of Toshiba. And those relationships certainly certainly help. Um, I mean, I don't know of another, another rugby body in the world that's got someone of that success at business level um, as chairman. Um, and that's a massive advantage that, that the league's had, and that's already showing too in the, the support of the clubs and the the, the uh, security that the league has as a result. I was going to say some some of the some of the uh, bosses for other rugby unions will probably tell you they're on that level, uh, even though they might not be. Uh, but let's not go there. <laughs> we can go down a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah, well, if we do that one. So. Well, the great the great thing about Gen is he's so humble. You'd never know. You'd never know his background, and he just loves the game. Um, so it's, it's it's been great dealing with him. It's I mean I've dealt with rugby administrators all over the world, and I've certainly never dealt with someone like Gen before. And and the chief operating officer Hajime Shoji is a lovely guy as well. They're very very genuine. They're very um, they encourage. I mean it's almost like what the players have. They've encouraged me to do whatever I can do to promote the game. There's no you must do this, you must do that with them. They've said well you know what you're doing. That's why we want you. Uh, go for it, and and that's what's what we've done. And um, like I said, they I can see why Gene has been or Gene has been so successful as a businessman, given given his attitude and how he encourages his his staff. It will be remiss of us to to sorry, not please. ask you about um, sorry, Brendan, uh, about the uh, the rivalry between South Africa and New Zealand. It seems that the the spark is back after you know a couple of a good couple of years where All Blacks uh, basically ruled the roost. But it looks like the rivalry is back and it's proper. Um, and this year, obviously, a big year because uh, the All Blacks played two tests in South Africa. Um, 
and it would seem uh, there'll be some involvement if if uh, the rumor mill is to be believed there'll be uh, you know some potential all blacks involvement or former all blacks involvement in this african you know setup um is that something that enthuses you is it something that uh, that surprises you and how do you think this this will play out well, I think we can claim Tony Brown as Japanese, can't we? I mean, he's been involved in the Japanese national team for the last eight years. So so we'll say he's a, a Japanese product, not a New Zealand one. Yeah, I think with the rivalry, I think, you know, familiar, it's the old saying, isn't it? Familiarity breeds contempt, and, and it just got a bit boring. Um, so I think the fact that the Springboks have won the World Cup, the fact that the All Blacks have a new coach, and obviously Razor, who I've worked with, is uh, as a private person, he's the same as everything you see. He's very much an extrovert. Um, he loves the game, and uh, and the players react. He he really connects with the millennials. They love it. So um, so we'll see how that works at test level because it is a different lot of pressures. There's a lot more peripheral stuff off the field that he's going to be dealing with. He's already struck it a little bit with his call for New Zealand to pick international players, which internationally based players, which hasn't gone down well. Um, but yeah, that'll bring a spark, an added spark to it. Um, I think you know going to South Africa for two games is just about the ultimate test. Um, so that'll be a massive test for him in his first year. Um, but I think the fact that they're playing less is going to help uh, bring that rivalry back to where it should be. There were rumours that the unions were looking at tours as well. So, you know, the, the box would come over and play the Super Rugby teams as well as the All Blacks and, and vice versa. I think that's a great idea. That would be fantastic if we could do that. Um, because I, I remember the days of, um, I mean, I, I was there in 94, I think it was, when Otago beat the box to get the Springbok head. And that was just unbelievable. You know, that was, that was, those were great times. And, and we need to try and get that back to engage a new generation of um, fans. And, um, and, you know, we need to do things differently to do that. And that's why Japan's so important. And that's why there needs to be more creativity, I think, among the national unions to, uh, to make that happen. Um, but you know they're talking about it, so hopefully, hopefully there's something in the in the in the wind down the track. I mean, there's a lot of talk about this Test Nations League that's coming up as well, and obviously Japan's name is being mentioned there. But I mean, there are some worries. I mean, as you say, we do need a better structure than I suppose what's being suggested at the moment. It's all all very well if you're in, but for all those countries that sort of fall out the top, mm. um, it becomes rather you know, difficult to. To, to maintain that sort of um, level of competition, especially if you don't have a league like Japan has, for instance. Um, what's, the, what's the reaction been there to the Test League there in Japan? Um, well, I think there's a bit of excitement around the possibilities for the, the Brave Blossoms with that. Uh, I mean, they're just after any inter international exposure they can get, whether it be at club level or for the national team. Um, like I said, the appointment of Eddie uh, indicates they just think that he might be able to take them to the next level again. And um, again, regular exposure for the Brave Blossoms is only going to make them better. They'll, they'll crack it. They'll, they will beat a top-tier team or, or a team ranked above them, I'd prefer to say, than top-tier. Um, and then once they do that, I think they'll be away because in the last few years, they've been getting close without managing to nail it. I mean, if you look at the World Cup, they were right in the England game until the the, the ball, the, the soccer header, which gave England a lucky try, and that, that blew the game open. Likewise, against Argentina, they went tit for tat in one of the best pool games of the tournament, but just couldn't finish it off. And we'd seen that earlier with game, games against France when they'd hosted 
France and got close. The the All Blacks a couple of years ago, same thing, got close, were, were well and truly in that game, but just couldn't push through. So for Japan, the Nations League and the proposed World Club Championship are both brilliant. They're absolutely perfect for what they need. But I hear you with the other countries. My personal view is that the World Cup itself should be two-tiered, um, like they used to do the junior tournaments, um, the under-19s when they had that tournament and the like, with promotion relegation, so you keep that aspect of jeopardy um, till the end, but also so that you have even matchups right through. I mean, I don't think the All Blacks beating Namibia by 80 points offers a lot. Um, and, you know, the argument that the teams need to be exposed to the top tier, I accept that but maybe do that in the pre-tour tournament games. Mm -hmm. So rather than the All Blacks playing South Africa, they have to play Namibia or, or, um, you know, someone else like that. Perhaps there's a structure in place where the the teams that are in the top division have to play two warm-up games against the teams in the second division. So those lower teams are still getting um, opportunities to play against the top teams. But once the World Cup itself starts, they're playing at the level they should be at rather than being exposed to these teams that are just creating mismatches. And I did a bit of an exercise out of curiosity um, around the competitiveness of the of the last tournament compared to all the previous ones because there'd been a lot of talk about it being the most competitive, um, and it wasn't. Um, I looked at – I used for a mismatch um, 30 points plus. So if a game was won by 30 points or more by, by a team, then I declared that a mismatch – and there were more of those in the last tournament than there had been since 2003. Um, so that says to me that it's actually not getting more competitive, it's getting less competitive. So we need to come up with a formula that's going to work better. Um, and to me, a two-tiered system is the way to go um, with promotion relegation. So you carry that jeopardy right through to the end. Um, and it means if you finish last and you'll pull in the top division, then you've got to play promotion relegation. And those games would go on at the same time as the uh, quarterfinals, semifinals, and final. And it gives TV more games. It gives the hosts more games. So, you know, from a financial perspective, it can probably make more money. Mm. Uh, well, games with meaning all the way through. Absolutely. All the way through. Yeah. Uh, I take your point. There. The, uh, this is not meant as a curveball, but if you look down the track, um, say, three years, uh, in terms of global standing, what would what do you think will be bigger the Japan national team, or do you think the Japan Rugby League one? Um, well, that's hard to hard to assess, Liam. I think the national team will always take preeminence, and certainly if, if the national team can start beating those top teams, because at the moment they have an international vehicle that League One doesn't yet have. Um, I mean, these cross-border games this weekend and next weekend are a great start, but they're not a formal competition, and so they'll be played pretty much as trial games. I think once the World Club Championship comes into being, and that has to happen at some point, and the Japanese clubs go into that and, and start doing well, start surprising, I think then the, the League One profile will grow a lot further as a result of that. But for now, it's probably always going to be the Brave Blossoms. And to be honest, that's as it should be. Um, you know, I mean, Super Rugby would never overtake the All Blacks in terms of the profile of New Zealand Rugby. Likewise, the United Rugby Championship with the Springboks. While winning the United Rugby Championship would be a hell of an achievement for a side, it doesn't quite match the Springboks winning the World Cup. Yeah. Um, I see I see. we're going to about to close it off a bit. Um, but, Matt, the last question from me. 
Um, just uh, the, the, I see that the League One is now on ESPN uh, out here in yes. South Africa. Um, how's the response been there? Have you guys seen any figures yet? Is, is it getting some eyeballs? Uh, we haven't seen any figures yet. Well, I certainly haven't. But based on the number of um, comments on websites coming out of South Africa and, and um, the fact that more stuff's being reported in the South African media, or certainly on the South African rugby websites, that to me is a good indicator that it is being watched. Um, and I think it was really important to get League One into more markets. It's been shown in New Zealand as well, um, and it's been shown on rugby, the Rugby Pass website, if you're a member of that. You can watch the games through there, and that's a big bonus. And as people get see the games, see the teams, they get more interested as a result. The South Africans sprinkle right through the competition, so there's certainly plenty, plenty there for for viewers in Africa to watch. And obviously, they know the big name All Blacks and the and the Wallabies as well. So it creates a level of interest more more global. And um, yeah, the the hope would be that at the next rights round, even more countries want to take it take it up. But that will depend on the stars that are there. Certainly if more English players, for example, go, then there'll be more interest in the UK about playing Japan Rugby League One on on, on their services. Yeah. Matt, thanks so much. Uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, thanks for sharing so generously. Uh, I think uh, our listeners uh, know a lot more now about the, uh, about the rugby setup in Japan than they did maybe before this program. Uh, so thank you for, for your effort and, and, and doing so at, at fairly short notice. Hey, listen, thanks a lot for the opportunity, guys. It's um, it's really good to see you both again and, and to catch up. I'm sure we'll get the chance to do it more informally down the track. But as always, thanks very much for your support of the league. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, good to see you both. Keep well. Thanks, Matt. It's been good. Uh, we'll chat to you soon. Uh, that's it for us today. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll chat to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can find all the To The Last Drop podcasts on the Brendan Nell YouTube channel, iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.